Um, so Mark 14, we're looking at verse 12 through 25-ish here. Uh, the preparation for Passover. Um, it's been Passion Week. Well, for a few months for us, I mean, <laughs> as we've slowly been studying along. But um, Passion Week or maybe Passion Month or so, depending on some of the history that's going on here. And as we read about the preparation for the Passover feast, it's a little bit reminiscent of uh, the preparation for the triumphal entry. There will be a couple things as you read it that you're like, that almost sounds like, you know, how Jesus acquired the donkey, you know, that he would ride down. Instead, he's acquiring an upper room, you know. And so there's just a lot of neat, um, you see the sovereignty of God and you see the power of Jesus in like knowing what's going on and who's going to be where and the orchestration of things here leading up to um, Jesus's death on the cross. And so um, let's just go ahead and get into it. Um, but uh, well, let me read this quote from the um, Pillar New Testament commentary. Uh, it says, the description of the Passover preparation is strongly reminiscent of the preparations for the entry into Jerusalem. In both passages, Jesus sends two disciples on covert errands that must be completed if events are to proceed. Both errands entail mysterious meetings and both transpire exactly as Jesus predicts. Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. And so uh, it is interesting as you read this, see if you can catch just God's sovereignty and God's control in this story of today but also man's responsibility and man, man as free agents doing things that it was prophesied of them. And yet part of the mystery is they have a decision on if they are going to act out and do these things as well. So getting into some deep theology there, um, but it's kind of good to stretch the brain a little and get it going. So in verse 12, we've got now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had killed, or if you got the NIV, they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So um, there's uh, a little bit of, I mean, you could get into some real deep um, culture here of Passover. You could get into the days of the months and the days of the week and the days of Nisan, which was the month that this Passover took place. And um, I can share my notes and you can read all that and totally geek out and nerd out. I don't think we have the time for it today or we'll never make it through this section. Um, but there's some interesting things here as it comes that time, the, the date that the lamb was to be sacrificed. I encourage you guys on your own time uh, to read Exodus chapter 12. It's the story of Passover and it's, um, while it really did happen uh, as part of God freeing Israel from Egypt, uh, it also was a foreshadowing and a type of uh, the one who was to come, who would free us from our own personal Egypts, from the Egypt of sin and death, and that there would be a lamb that would come and be slain to take away our sins. And we know that that would be Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Uh, he's the true and better Passover lamb who, when his blood is applied to the doorpost of our heart, 
the angel of death and the, and, and, uh, the wrath of God passes over us uh, and was placed upon Jesus instead. So um, Luke's gospel tells us that it was uh, Peter and John who were the two that were interested in getting Passover rocking and rolling and getting the preparations laid out. So um, definitely was the two of them when Jesus in verse 13 sends out two of his disciples and says to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Um, so, uh, interesting here, you've got, uh, Passover has swelled to be millions of people at this time in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you remember when the LRS fest came through here or the rainbow people or, uh, symbiosis, you know, I mean, you know what it's like when all of a sudden there's a great influx and a great swell of a population of people sometimes welcome, sometimes not so much welcome, you know, and, uh, and yet, you know, this was a welcome thing. This was a celebration. This was worship. This was religion, you know, which is good and, and can be bad, but religion, uh, you know, in itself, it's like, man, this is worship to God and holiness to the Lord. Um, and so tons of people hustle and bustle, people getting ready for Passover. And so the fact that there was a guy carrying a pitcher and they were supposed to zone in on this guy, I mean, it, w- it would have been the Lord that would have led him to the right guy preparing for Passover. And so uh, that that's exactly what happened. They were brought to this place. Um, and it's interesting. I highlighted in my notes here that um, it says Jesus wants to eat the Passover with his disciples. Or it says there, it's more first person, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Uh, that struck me because he's eating the fulfillment of what he is. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, um, maybe it's kind of like a birthday cake. You know, you got 30 candles on your birthday cake and you blow it out and you're like, this is me, 30, you know, and you celebrate and you kind of like take it in, right? And Jesus is like, okay, hey, I'm eating the Passover. I've done it since I was a little kid and it's always foreshadowed me, right? This is about me. And now I'm going to eat it. It's going to be the last time. It's going to be with my disciples. I'm going to be setting it up, declaring this Lord's Supper that we're going to get into in just a little bit. And I'm going to eat something that just completely typifies me and this action that I'm doing to save the world from their sins. Like that's a pretty powerful, deep thing. Communion is sort of an example of that, you know, where we take into us these elements that describe to the world what's happened to us. All right. And, uh, and Jesus is doing that as well, but it's a lot more intimately first person for him. And it's interesting. Some of the books that I read, I I've always known that, um, this upper room that they're going to be led to is known to be Mark's family's house. Okay. When you read the book of Acts, it's John Mark's house that has this upper room where the New Testament church in Jerusalem would meet. And so uh, it's the same upper room, it's believed, as is right here. And so some even, I never thought of this till I read it this week, some believe that this was actually John Mark or Mark carrying the picture that uh, he's leading them to uh, the upper room. 
Uh, John Mark wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't one of the 12. He was about 16 years old at the time of Jesus being here. In fact, we're going to see a little drama in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's believed John Mark is the young man wrapped in a cloth that has to run away naked from the drama there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So John Mark has a whole lot of kind of interesting details about his life. And it may be him here packing the pitcher, maybe not, but it is believed that it was his family's house that uh, was in Jerusalem where the um, Passover was eaten, where the Last Supper was eaten, where the day of Pentecost took place, where the prayer meeting happened in Acts, where uh, Peter was freed from prison, um, and, all, and so on and so forth. So uh, kind of uh, interesting things there, but um, believe that this room belonged to Mary, the mother of John Mark. Look at Acts one thirteen and Acts 12.12. Anyways, just some fun stuff. I appreciate some of that. Anyways, um, verse 15, uh, then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. Uh, so when you go to Israel and one day I hope we all get to, I'm actually, it's on my to-do list to start looking at a trip to Israel that's not going to break the bank of the Polina people. Okay. So, I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's so wonderful. Uh, it's costly. So I'm looking at like maybe a budget, you know, national lampoons trip to Israel, you know, <laughs> maybe get a station wagon, you know, I don't know, but, um, make it work where it's, you know, something that hits our budget. And, um, but when you do go there, when you go to Jerusalem, you get to go to the area of the upper room and what's been believed for, you know, there's a lot of places over there that the Catholic churches come in and kind of stamp down their like cathedrals and they're like, this is where this happened when there's not really a lot of evidence that that took place. The upper room is one of the places that it is believed through church history that this is the area um, that the upper room was. And so you go in there and it's this big, beautiful room and uh, Christians from all over the world are there. Every time we're there, different Christians are singing worship to the Lord and you kind of join in. And usually it's the hallelujah chorus because that um, word is transcends languages, you know, so it's a beautiful place. It's a large upper room. Um, and it had furniture. It was, uh, upstairs. It was large. Uh, it suggested that this was a wealthy household. It had, um, this word furnished or estramanon speaks of having carpets and couches for the guests to recline on as they eat. And of course, John's gospel, John talks about the reclining that was happening at it, you know, and the lazy boys and the leaning against each other, you know, as bros having fellowship. Um, I try to do that when we're hanging out. I'm like, Hey, can I lean against you, Alan? He's like, we ain't in Asia anymore, you know? <laughs> uh, and so 16, his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. I love that. Um, you don't see it so much in Mark, but when you read the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is all about, you know, whatever Jesus said and whatever it was written, he'll often write just as it was written, just as it is written, just as it is written. And it just shows the inspiration and authority of the word of God. And in this case, you also have it just like with the triumphant entry in the cult that was tied up and loosed and the people saying, Hey, what are you doing with our donkey? You know, all that just as it was written, just as he had said. I love those little things that are like the authority of Jesus when he speaks out. And so they went and they prepared 
the Passover. And so as we get into uh, the next section here, we are going to have the Passover celebrated. We're going to have the betrayer called out. Um, And if you remember a little bit about how Mark writes the gospel, he does what's been often called as Markian sandwiches. Okay. Uh, He sets up um, a story and then something in between the story. And then he finishes the first story with whatever was in between. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the Jews were wanting to figure out a way to trap Jesus. Okay. And then you have um, Mary anointing Jesus with her dowry, that expensive bottle of perfume. And then you have um, Judas going out and setting up the betrayal. Okay. So there was betrayal, treachery, worship, beautiful worship, betrayal and treachery. Okay. And so here we have, um, a little bit of, uh, a sandwich as well in verses 17 through 21, we have, um, the betrayal of the disciple, uh, prophesied there. Jesus speaks it out. One of you is going to betray me here tonight. Then we have like a really neat time of worship and Eucharist and the last supper. And then you have, uh, by verses 27 through 31, just the prophecy of the defection of the disciples and Peter's abandonment and all the sheep are going to flee away from the shepherd. And so you've got betrayal, worship, communion, betrayal, and, and flakiness. Okay. So it's just kind of interesting how Mark writes this. Some of you don't care, um, but it's the, it's the flow of the book. All right. All right. So, um, and it kind of helps you remember these things as well. Um, At Bethany, it was said that the woman anoints Jesus's body for burial. At the Last Supper, Jesus gives his body for sinners. And so look at verse 17. In the evening, he came with the 12. Now, uh, as you study this, there were the 12 there. um, But it's believed that there were actually more there, that actually uh, the women, they accompanied Jesus everywhere. Uh, They were a part of this ministry, that they were there as well. And so when it gets specific and talks about one of you, one of the 12 here with me, one of you dip in your hand and who's going to betray me, he's kind of in the midst of a big crowd. He's bringing it home to like one of you 12 and then one of you who dips with me here. Okay, so uh, some of the evidence that I looked at, there may have been some of the gals that followed Jesus around, the Marys and the Marys and the Marthas, and that they were a part of this Last Supper as well. You don't see that in the famous picture, right? Where? <laughs> okay. Uh, I was just thinking about, have you seen the new picture of uh, the meme of the Last Supper when it's a Zoom meeting, you know? And it's a picture of everyone, like, as if they were on, like, a Zoom call, like, hey, are you, you got sound, Judas? You know, hey, you know, and it's neither here nor there. Just a little distracting when you're trying to preach and you're thinking of funny memes. It happens. Um, now, uh, it was evening. He came with the 12, verse 18. Now, as they sat and ate, there's a good meal going on. Just got to point that out. Good meal. How many of you, raise your hand real quick, have ever eaten a Passover meal? Anyone here been part of a Passover? Kind of cool. We've done it at church, yeah, and uh, yeah, um, and so you know, occasionally we do big Passover meals as a church or as home groups or something, and it's really fun because you go through the Passover seder, it's called, and you've got all sorts of cups and different sips that you drink out of the cup. Uh, you've got different 
uh, matzo crackers and hummus that you dip in, and it symbolizes the the mortar that was used to make bricks of the Egyptians, and there's salt water and hyssop, and you eat the salt water dipped hyssop, and it reminds you of the Red Sea crossing, and you eat a boiled egg dipped in the salt water too. Maybe you're not supposed to dip it in the salt water, but it's much better. Anyways, I don't even remember what that represents. It's been a while. Anybody remember what the boiled egg represents? Been a while? Nope. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it all points to the gospel and it rem- we remember the Exodus. Um, you got the matzah crackers where there's, um, three matzahs and the one in the middle. Yeah. It's, it was when the children of the, uh, Israel was out in the desert and the quail. Symbol of the quail. Okay, cool. So you need like a little egg then if you're going to remember that. Okay. Yeah. If you can get a quail egg for Passover, you got to go for it. Okay. Um, <laughs> So one of the best parts is, uh, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, so forgive me, but I don't think there's any spoiler alerts with um, the Last Supper and how it goes down. Um, I never knew. Okay. Okay. So forgive me the hot, but but part of one of the final parts of the meal is um, eating the afikomen. Okay, and the afikomen was um, there were three unleavened matzo breads. Okay, and uh, the one in the middle was taken out and it was especially um, cooked to be pierced and broken. And then you take half of that afikomen bread and you go hide it around the room and you wrap it in a cloth when you hide it. And then you come back and then you say, all right, kids, go find the afikomen. And then they go running around the house. It's like part of the fun game, you know, and they find whoever finds the afikomen gets a prize. There's a prize there for them. So it's all part of the feast. And of course, that's a picture of the middle person of the Trinity, the son who was broken and pierced and was buried and wrapped. And when he came, there was a gift given to everyone, right? The gift of eternal life. So Passover, man, there's so much about it. So Jesus is eating this, you know, and they're eating the hyssop dipped in the salt water, the boiled egg, you know, it's like uh, the lamb, right? I mean, that's kind of a big part of the whole thing too. The mutton, it's not, kind of depends how it's prepared. Okay. Kind of fatty, kind of chewy. Needs a little meat tenderizer on it. Okay. Um, So they're eating and man, just Man, Passover Seder, it's a blessed time, right? And then Jesus has to be a Debbie Downer, okay? (laughs) Check it out. As they sat and ate and John's leaning against the breast of Jesus, the disciple that Jesus loves, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. So, a little bit of a wet blanket on the party. You know, you hear the record go, you know, um, it was playing some good Seder music in the background. And uh, what was said, and one man said, what bitter irony to recall that this feast, which was reminiscent of victory, right? Uh, it began with an announcement of treachery that was going to be happening here. And so it's just interesting. Um, you know, if you've ever been with someone that's, uh, they're just, they're going to be wounded by a friend or they've been wounded by a friend. And you're with them and you're maybe at the pizza parlor, you know, or you're just, you know, kind of having a good time, keeping it light. And then they just, they just share the pain of being betrayed by a friend, you know, and then there's just some real fellowship that happens of comfort and, and talking that through and that Jesus has had that happen. And, um, and this is all prophecy. Look at Psalm 41, nine. 
It's a prophecy of what would be happening here. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, in Matthew 26, 46, uh, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then that betrayer is going to come. And, and how is he going to set Jesus apart out of everyone else in the crowd? He's going to kiss him, right? I've actually, you know, it doesn't take long before in ministry, you get people that wound you and hurt you, betray you. I've been betrayed many times. Um, I've been betrayed by one of my best friends and literally in the midst of it, literally kissed me on the cheek. And I was like, where have I read this before in the Bible? <laughs> Are we doing a little thing? Should I then quote what Jesus says? Or, you know, but you know, it's just, it's, I mean, and everyone's been there in a different way, right? We've all been wounded and hurt and it's just good to know Jesus knows. Okay. Jesus has been there. He has experienced this. Um, in John chapter six sixty seven. Uh, after he kind of set up a future of what communion would be eating my flesh, drinking my blood, everyone thought he was a cannibal. So everyone left him. This is John chapter six. Uh, Jesus says to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the 12? And one of you is a devil. <laughs> Knows how to win friends and influence. You know, it's like, <laughs> But they never really picked up on it, right? Um, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Uh, look at John thirteen one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so I'm speed reading it, which is tragic, because this is John's version of the Last Supper. And he's getting, you know, they're getting ready to have the supper. And in preparation of it, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. So this is a beautiful thing that as they prepare to it, uh, Jesus, it's just a great message on how Jesus loved his own to the end. Because it's coming up to the end here. Um, and when supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. And so we just have a little bit of insight from John's gospel as to one of you is going to betray me. The devil had put it into Judas's heart to do it. He had been tempted and he didn't resist that temptation, but he acted upon that desire. He, he was jealous or rather greedy for money and he wanted money and he wasn't really all that infatuated with Jesus anymore. Jesus keeps talking about dying, you know, not leading a revolt against the Romans yeah, I think I might turn this guy in, you know? And, um, and so there's betrayer, there's the devil. Jesus actually said, one of you is a devil. And, uh, in John also thirteen twenty one, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. So everyone do your best perplexed look. Some of you are doing it anyways because of this sermon. <laughs> so that was a good one. You get it from your mom. She had also a good one, right? So, you know, like one of you is going to betray me tonight. You're just kind of like, you know, at first it's like confused. Like we were having such a great evening, right? Um, 
And then uh, verse 19, and they began to be sorrowful. Matthew's gospel says exceedingly sorrowful. And they said to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And so Jesus isn't going to like just drop it and be like, okay, guys, it's him. You know, Uh, he leaves them a little bit perplexed in this. He does not provide relief by identifying who it is, the culprit right away. But there's a little bit of mystery to it. And it provokes soul searching in each disciple. Like, would I? I mean, maybe it could, but would I? Would I do that? No way. You know, um, is it I? How one guy said how this protest echoes down through the centuries. You know, would I have done this? And verse 20 says, and he answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. So this is when you want to avoid being around Jesus for about 10 minutes. Okay. (laughs) Like going to stay away from the hummus bowl for just like 10 minutes. But you guys, if you've ever had hummus. I mean, the spices and the garbanzo beans crushed up. I mean, you get a pita chip and it is hard. You know me too. I'm like, "Mm, gotta do it, you know? And they're all looking at Jesus like, eh, 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 oh, and then they're kind of watching. Well, who, you know, Jesus is trying to get in there with Judas Iscariot right at the right. Okay. (laughs) Laughing helps me deal with the pain of what's actually happening here. I apologize. This clarification limits the culprits to the 12, if there were more people in the room. Okay, so there's one of us, and then it brings it down narrower to whoever's going to dip dip it. And uh, in another gospel, uh, after everyone is soul searching, is it I, is it I, would I, would I, you know? When it comes to Judas, he asks Jesus, and Jesus says, it is you. All right, so there's a little clarity there as well. Uh, John 13, we already read verse 21 uh, and 22, but then in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Again, biblical to lean on each other when we're hanging out. It's like, give me a little space, all right? A little breathing room. Uh, but that was John. And verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned him to ask who it was. Who? Who is it that you're speaking about? Who's going to betray you? Then leaning back on Jesus's breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread. So maybe Judas was avoiding the hummus bowl. Like not doing it, not doing it. Okay, now I'm just going to give it to you. (laughs) I'm going to push your hand down in there. Um, I'm going to give it after I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Jesus had, Judas had the money box and Jesus said to him, hey, go buy those things we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. So um, kind of jumped ahead there in John's story and kind of gave a little more to the narrative of what's going on as the betrayer is being called out and singled out. Verse 21, 
The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So, I mean, the prophecy is as old as Genesis chapter three, that that there would be a hero that would come and save from their sins. The prophecy is as old as Psalm 46 and that my own faithful friend will raise his heel against me. It's going to happen. It's got to happen. That's God's sovereignty, but on man's responsibility side of it, woe to the guy that's going to be the one that willfully chooses to do that. And Jesus speaks that out. Um, uh, One guy said, this verse is one of the most suggestive verses in scripture on the relationship between divine causality and human responsibility. The phrase it is written carries the sense of divine purpose or foreordination. So God's sovereignty, it's the plan throughout the ages that this is how the world would be redeemed. It's going to happen. It's gotta happen. And even when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane will say, hey, if there's any other way that we can work out redemption, let this cup of the cross and separation from you pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There was no other way. It needed to happen. Acts chapter three, verse 17 and 18 speaks of that, the prophecy um, in verse 18, we'll look at Acts three eighteen. but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then if you go to one more chapter over Acts four twenty seven, this is Peter preaching uh, to the Jews for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So it was prophesied, God determined and purposed that it would happen, but woe to the one that does it. Horror to the one, wrath and judgment to the one that does it. Oh, Judas, man, resist the devil and he will flee Judas. Like it could be accomplished through someone else, but run away. Don't be the one to do it. Um, and in all this, like it's such a mystery when you look like God's sovereignty, everything from a butterfly landing onto a, a flower to, you know, if your golf, you know, drive does a hole in one, or if you miss the putt, God is in control. He's sovereign. And yet part of a mystery of it all is that there's also ways that he's worked it to where there are free agents in the midst of it all. And it's a tension. It's a paradox. Uh, it's deep studies, guys. Guys have been trying to figure this out for centuries. And just the best that I can say is that sometimes tension is good. It holds the Golden Gate Bridge up. And uh, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they're like two pillars that go up to heaven and they meet somewhere before the throne of God. I don't know where, where but God knows. Okay. And so we have here... Uh, in the thought of it all, someone's going to betray Jesus, right? And it was going to be his friend. And Jesus is like, it's going to be Judas. He's the devil. You know, he's going to betray me. But Judas, man, you look at the book of James. Each one is tempted when they are led away by their own desires. He had this desire for the money and he was going after it. 
when if he would have just mortified sin and cut it off and confessed sin, and I'm feeling like betraying Jesus today, somebody help me. Like God would have been merciful and like, all right, I'm a merciful God. I'll do it a different way. We see times when that happens in the Old Testament. Um, neither Judas, <clears throat> rather, neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind fate or a pawn of divine strategy. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. Both currents of divine foreordination and human free will intersect in the Greek verb to deliver up or to hand over. Uh, so many verses here that we could look at. Lucas's fingers getting itchy, getting ready to go through them all, but we don't have time uh, to go through all of them together. So we just see that the betrayer was called out and he went and left. And even at that point, people didn't know it was Judas. Isn't that interesting? Like, oh, he must be going to get some snackies for the Passover meal, you know, or to make a little Passover donation to the Salvation Army. Shabbat Shalom. Right. Um, but in verse 27, we do see communion instituted. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take uh, many translations say eat, although that's not in the original, but take, eat, this is my body. Um, there's a lot we could get into uh, as far as like, at this point in the feast, we are after the first cup. And now, we, you know, um, how about we just have our own Passover Seder in April? How does that sound? Okay. And uh, we'll save ourselves about 20 minutes tonight. Okay. Um, but in April, it'd be fun. We'll get a Passover Seder. We'll have it Polina style. Maybe instead of lamb, we have beef no i'm kidding we'll have a lamb because you know i gotta keep it okay uh but seriously make sure there's some tri-tip there right it's not like any of us are beef farmers around here all right um from earliest times the last supper has been regarded by the church as a true representation of fellowship with christ of intimacy with christ in sharing with christ in what he did uh, Jesus is going to, as it says, uh, take the bread and bless it. The common prayer from that day was blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world who brings forth bread from the earth. And then according to the Jewish writings of the Torah, the bread of the presentation was placed on the golden table in the tabernacle. Um, and Sabbath by Sabbath, that bread was called the bread of remembrance. I had to highlight this, uh, writing here. Uh, really blessed by the pillar New Testament commentary. This is my body, Jesus said. In Aramaic, which he spoke in Jesus's native tongue, it was translated, um, this is my person or my whole being or myself is what was being said. Uh, likewise, behind the Greek, in the Greek writings, when the word body is used here, it's not the word flesh, but being. And so when Jesus breaks it, this is my body. He's essentially saying, I'm giving all of me to save the world. I'm giving everything of my being to redeem the world of their sins. There is without reserve, a self offering of myself for the disciples. In verse 23, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. A couple different ideas on if you should pass around uh, a single cup or lots of cups. Can I just share a story? <laughs> okay, so we were going to purchase the Episcopal Church in Prineville, which we ended up doing. 
And we were invited, Joe, be mature, okay, be mature. We were invited to a special deconsecration of the Episcopal Church, which, and they said, hey, I know it sounds weird, but we're removing our blessing and giving it to you. And I was like, that's all right, but I'm just going to go behind you and bless everything again. Okay. And it was very liturgical, which the Episcopals are, and they've got very nice garments and shepherd hooks and staffs and things like that. And going through and singing songs that I've never sang, it was a good time. And we went into the chapel of the church. If you've ever been in the chapel of our church, it's stained glass windows, built in 1946, beautiful room. And, um, and they're having communion. And just to be honest, I had to wrestle on like, there's some differences that, uh, in the Episcopal doctrine that I was like, oh, I don't know if I should take communion with them, you know? And the Lord was like, hey, like rejoice in the blood of the cross and what I've done and, and proclaim it today here in this group. So, but they did it a little different. They had a, a priest and a priestess up there um, on this altar and um, you were to come and you could kneel at the altar or you could stand and they would set the cracker on your tongue and they would bless it, you know? And then uh, I'd seen this on TV. I'd never done it this way. I don't know about you guys, but, and so uh, Johnny Olkers and I go up and I kind of stand up there and they say, you know, this is the body that was broken for you. And I'm like, okay. And, I'm like, and you know, they stick it on the tongue and crunch, 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 crunch. And then uh, the gal comes up with the, the goblet, you know, and um, I'd seen on TV where they like pour it into your mouth for you, you know? <laughs> And so she's like, this is the blood of Jesus sacrificed for you. And I go, thank you. And literally my hands are done like this. And I go, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm not sure how, you know, and she, she started, and there's like 50 people watching me and she goes, Rory, you can take it. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and uh, just the benefit of everyone getting their own cup, okay? I was also the last guy to go. There were some floaters in it, but. <laughs> so anyways, not to be disrespectful, that was just, hey. And they're like, that's the guy that pastors the church is buying this? Oh, this is not good, right? That's what you're thinking now, too. Okay. Show us your perplexed face, everybody. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so he gave and they all drank from it. And it was after they drank from it, which is actually important when you're looking at the Catholic uh, transubstantiation, okay? That it was after they drank it that Jesus then gives the commentary on it being uh, his blood of the new covenant. It's hard to get back to normal after that. <laughs> Are we getting back into theology now after I have that mental picture? <laughs> Peggy knows how that is. We've had our times, haven't we, Peggy? Okay. Um, and so verse 24, it's, don't get me wrong. It's important that it's coming after verse 23. Okay. For doctrinal purposes regarding transubstantiation. Okay. Uh, in the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the priest turns the element into the actual body of Jesus and the actual blood of Jesus there on the altar. Okay, so that's Catholic Mass. Look it up in a Catholic encyclopedia, transubstantiation, and that sacrifice, Jesus is sacrificed again and again and again and again. Every Mass, 
in every cathedral across the world every week. Okay, I love Catholics. This is just an unbiblical um, doctrine. And uh, and as you look at Hebrews chapter, uh, well, really the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus sacrificed himself one time for all, once and for all. When he said, it is finished, te telestai, uh, that sacrifice, atonement was made. And there was not the need for future sacrifices after that point, okay? Um, and so there's a whole lot to get into as to why it's important that verse 24 and how he's talking about his blood that's shed for many, sealing the deal of the new covenant and how that came after they had already drank it, passed the cup around, and now he's giving commentary on it. Um, but I can share my notes for you if you're interested in that, okay? Um, the disciples showed that they needed needed this at this point. And, um, as they all drank, they were swearing allegiance to Jesus. And yet we see the grace of God here because by the end of the night, they're all going to forsake him. And isn't that just a picture of Christian life? So many times, like here we are, it's Sunday. We love you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We remember the blood of the cross. And then we go stumbling and fumbling and bumbling out the rest of the rest of our week until we come back and you're like, I need you. And so it's just a great picture of grace this uh, last supper here. Okay. Verse 25. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In closing here, look at first Corinthians chapter 11. And there's some scripture here that um, it's Paul's version of the last supper. We kind of read a little bit of John's. We've read um, some of Matthew's and uh, let's look at Paul's he was shown this by the Lord when he spent time with Jesus after his conversion, when he was in the wilderness and uh, says first Corinthians eleven twenty three. for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so some commentary by Paul there about when we take communion, something that we're doing is we're proclaiming the gospel to one another. We're proclaiming the gospel to the world and we're taking these elements that are pictorial and symbolic of the death of Jesus, the the piercing and the stripping and the whipping of his body and the shedding of his blood that provides uh, atonement and forgiveness of our sins. And as we do that, we're preaching the gospel. Every time we do that, every week we preach the gospel. And then it just goes on to give us some warning there in 1 Corinthians 11 that we come to it just with sobriety of heart and mind um, and confession of sin and uh, in, a, in a worthy manner. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So just good, just exhortation there that as we are coming to the table, we're confessing our sin before the Lord, confessing sin to each other. If someone has something against another, we're just spending time reconciling with them. And we take these 
uh, proclamations of the Lord's death and we receive them into ourselves. You know, when we eat something, like I was saying earlier, we're, we're really bringing it into our inner man, into our inner being, and we're receiving it, proclaiming that we are a part of whatever's going on here. And as we take communion, we're saying we're dedicating ourselves with allegiance to Jesus. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and move toward that. Uh, one last thing here we could say, verse 26, save it till next week or read it now. But it says that then they had sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, And um, some believe that it was part of the Passover songs of singing out the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 115 through 18 may have been sung here. So 